Check, check. Hello, listeners. It's just you and me today. So, maybe a long-winded story, but I was thinking, do a little Into the Cave about uh, something spooky, kind of get us in the spooky season mood. And so I looked around, and I was completely out of ideas. I don't know what's spooky anymore after the past two years, but... Something came to me. So, probably last month, I ordered fennel from Turkey. Why? Because I'm a fancy bitch. I'm fancy. And it took about a month before I had forgotten and then remembered that I ordered the fennel. And I checked eBay, where I bought it from, and... It was still sitting in port. It didn't move. Nothing. Just sitting there. And so, the delivery date on eBay was already up. Should have been to me by then. So I put in a claim that it hadn't arrived. And I got a message from the seller, like a day later. Something like, please excuse the delay times with COVID-19 regulations and blah, 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 blah. It's taking extra long to get your product to you. Once you get your product, please uh, get rid of the claim because it does a lot of damage to our business. And I sat on it and I was like, you know what? Seems reasonable. I removed the claim and I'll wait. Took another month (laughs) before I actually got the thing. 60 days for something that should have shown up to me in two weeks. And then I kind of sat on that and let it be. And then recently, you know, doing a very large, international, important, cosmopolitan podcast like Timeline Earth, you read a lot of news, and one of the major things in the news that we hadn't touched on the show was supply chain problems. We kind of went around it, at least. And so I'm scrambling for a topic on Into the Cave and not finding anything spooky, and I see this tweet thread brilliant tweet thread that I'm going to read to you later from at man underscore integrated and it's all about the supply chain and then that clicked to me oh that's why it took the fennel so long to get here because of the supply chain problems and then I have family members who are like man have you noticed prices of food have gone up tremendously and I being a person who likes food quite a lot had noticed Food prices are going up tremendously. And as a person who is moving to Miami and needing to get a new car or a used car, also noticed, hey, used cars are really expensive now. And new cars are too. And that started to click too. Oh my god, supply chain problems, microchips, blah, blah, blah. Well, it all culminated into three or four days of manic research on the supply chain. That's what I like to do, at least, is get into the cave. So I am going to bring to you, just going to do some history here. Maybe a little genealogy. I don't know what they call it. I don't really care. I'm going to talk to you for as long as this takes. Shouldn't be too long. On a couple of big vulnerabilities that, you guessed it, as usual, the regulators helped to cause and the lockdowns exacerbated. Let's get right into it. As contemporary global capitalism forcibly integrates, it tightens chains and shorts circuits. In an erotic age, the fear of something else grants medical tyrannism a universal mandate to become simultaneously plate tectonic and platonic in the sense of a demiurge. Forty centuries of Phoenician reductionism gives way to American intermodality. Corrugated steel literally functions as Pandora's box. Containerization complexifies chains, forcing a mind-splitting commercial breakdown one century in the making. If techno-economic interactivity crumbles social order, 
it does so by tightening chains. Neoclassical economics, the chief concern of which is the maintenance of slow decline, gives way to Bilderbergian agendas by way of restraining. World Health organizes extermination at the terminal velocity of the crunch. Disruption triggers system shocks. Complexification saturates rhizomes, dampening them. And root causes turn into root rot, destroying everything from below. Breakdowns present an obvious analytical challenge. They break down. Putting the pieces back together recalls an old adage of the mesmerized vampire. The vampirization of the vampire is his own obsessive-compulsive preoccupation with trying to order increasingly diversifying clouds of chaos. So in order not to be vampirized, we can only ever take a look around. Even as systems experience econo-complexification and become intermodal, desire production seems to occupy the bulk of analysis. Yet, schizophrenia provides an analogy for a method of desire delivery. Industrial containerization illustrates the delivery of the process, but also the process of delivery. Vulnerabilities make us vulnerable, and the production of vulnerability parallels, on a micro-scale, packaging, and on a macro-scale, containers, or in the case of our focus, the delivery process. And as modernity nudges us towards desired determinism, modern people capture and intensify sensuality through the compression, distribution, and commercialization of a vast range of pleasures. All of this is simply to suggest that not only have we gone global, but so has our appetite. Gary Cross and Robert Proctor focus on the technological revolution of the sense-intensifying mechanism, packaging. They refer to a process of tubularization, where commodities are totally transformed by their package or delivery mechanism. The effect is always the transformation of the product, but also of the consumer. Cigarette smoking became cheaper, more convenient, and deadlier with its tubification. Sugar consumption might as well be the portrait of Nick Land's commoditization takeoff. The soda, candy bar, and insulin injection all arrive to us as tubes. Privatization of space reflects the containerization of the self, the notion that industrialization shapes culture and the experience of daily life grins menacingly. The modern man containerizes himself. Nature transforms his nature and becomes more vulnerable. Think of the privatization of public space, mood-shifting spotification where MP3 delivers instantaneous soundtracks defying environmental ambiance, which is inarguably public. Isolation, alienation, solipsism arise as vulnerabilities in an industrialized delivery system or system of delivery. In all cases, containerization produces a vulnerability to disruption of the chain between desire production and desire delivery. Chains only break after being tightened. It should be evidently clear how packaging dominates desire production via the hacking of neurology. Cross and Proctor identify four interrelated elements of all packaged pleasures. Number one, the packaged pleasure is an engineered commodity that contains, concentrates, preserves, and often intensifies some form of sensual satisfaction. Number two, it is generally speaking inexpensive, easy to access, and often portable and storable, often in a domestic setting. Three, it is typically wrapped and labeled and thus often marketed by branding. Although often portable, in the case of the amusement park, it can be enclosed and branded and contained in a fixed space. And four, the packaged pleasure is often produced by companies with broad regional, if not national or even global reach, creating a recognizable bond between the individual consumer and the corporate producer. A simple leap is required to approach an analysis of vulnerability by understanding the macro of desire delivery. 
and a discussion on containerization is necessary to solidify that which strikes us as obvious, but hidden. And with that, we can approach an understanding of our vulnerabilities. The post-war era was hyper-commercial. The resemblance to a hyperstition is purposeful. It's only gauche to blame the Industrial Revolution because it's become so completely obvious. Addiction, intensification, secular gluttony, maybe that's optimistic, and an unleashing of a virtualization of desire where the possibilities have become increasingly endless. Analysis of the system's inhibition-breaking capacity has been done, and done to death. Before the Industrial Revolution, supply chains were comparatively simple and region-locked. Perhaps this is an oversimplification, but it's going to have to be satisfactory to explain that most commercial transportation begins with the farmer, or whatever producer title you like, and was delivered to the market, followed by a purchase from the consumer. Beyond the limits of the locality, oceanic transportation was, and remains, the horizon of an increasingly complexifying transportation system. Until the 19th century, and just before the invention of the rail, the limits of desire were mediated at the dock of the port. Individual cargo craned on and off transport was the quantitative limit of desired delivery. One barrel, one crate, one box at a time. Mass production, the internal combustion engine, the railway, the cargo crane, and mass communication technologies internationalized commerce and increasingly inexpensive costs. Intermodality revolutionizes commerce and complexifies it. In fact, there's probably no useful distinction between intermodality and complexification at all. Not to mislead, it should be made clear that our subject, intermodal freight transport, is specifically mechanized. Surely cargo had been transferred between different modes of transportation for centuries. That's called modalism or modal freight transport. But under modalism, transportation required laborious movement of cardboard boxes, pallets, other bulk break forms of cargo from one mode of transportation to another, firstly by human chains of longshoremen, and later by steam-powered cranes, eventually by cranes with internal combustion engines, electric motors, or hydraulic systems. Bulk break cargo remained the dominant form of cargo throughout the majority of the history of shipping. Development in shipping technology had advanced for several thousand years in a few obvious avenues. Ship quality was improved, power sources were advanced, transfer logistics demanded better cranes to replace human chains. If hyper-commercialization was to have its way, and it was, then transportation technology had to focus on the long-ignored fundamental of freight movement. The shifting of cargo from one mode to another. Containers are by no means a new idea. As early as the 1830s, Great Britain had already developed mail trains, which were transferred directly from flat wagons to rails. It's only on transport's horizon where innovation exponentially increased development of containerization. It was maritime transport that had, for four decades between the 1920s and 1960s, demanded innovation of road and rail to accommodate a completely new mode of transportation, and it's difficult to call containerization a mode at all. Its effects have been the evaporation of seams within a global transportation network, moving freight from origin to destination at plummeting costs and supplanting previous methods of freight loading on a global scale almost entirely. It's estimated that 70% of seaborne trade is container-based, and almost the entire remainder regards bulk cargo, like liquids or gases, which are moved on specially designed tank ships. Adam Smith often made comparisons to overland transport and transport overseas and coastally, saying that as long as overland transport had depended on highways, draft animals, there was never going to be a competition between the two. The cost of overland freight in Smith's time was exorbitant. He wrote, quote, A broad-wheeled wagon attended by two men and drawn by eight horses in about six weeks carries and brings back between London and Edinburgh near four-ton weight of goods. In about the same amount of time, a ship navigated by six or eight men and sailing between ports of London and Leith 
frequently carries and brings back 200 ton weight of goods. The key technology innovated in the favor of overland transport was the railroad. Metal rails supporting vehicles and cargo was smoothening resistance and horizontal motion far better than a highway ever could. The age of railroads was the continental equivalent of maritime enterprises, a fast and efficient form of freight that expanded commercial possibilities to their peaks. Still, grand differences exist between railway and waterway. With the exception of the canal and improvements made towards rivers, nature provides accessibility to maritime traders at no cost. Attempts made in 1830s America by captains of industry took on tremendous costs to private enterprise in order to innovate an efficient overland transportation system. Investors took on land costs, building costs, maintenance and operational costs as obligations in the hopes that they could raise huge profits upon payoff. For all intents and purposes, railroads owned the ways they made, which is another key difference between that and maritime trade. After sinking huge costs, railroads began to see a growth in size and power as they dominated towns and regions along their roads, claiming huge wealth generation from within them. Public scrutiny over growing concerns of power led to railway regulation, which had entrepreneurs and industrial captains focusing on advancing themselves in the direction of maritime trade. Railroad capital originally came from merchants who succeeded in maritime ventures, and so now was returning there again. By the 1870s, tens of thousands of miles of railroad had already connected dozens of networks together, and so the great resources of the oceans began to have the capitalists move offshore. The point to be illustrated here is that the modal way of thinking was always an imposition which was learned and enforced. 19th century transportation system builders did not think in terms of modes, rather they saw the world in terms of service, the generation of markets, the administration of flows of traffic, and the management of costs. Entrepreneurs, of course, knew the difference between modes, but coordinated their efforts into multimodal systems. They did not restrict themselves to individual modes of transportation, especially where new markets began to open. The turn of the century saw the encroachment of federal restrictions against monopolization and so regulatory strategies that saw transportation systems as public utilities began to handicap, restrict, and conspire against industry. The federal government of the United States responded to the new expanding industries with progressive social theories, linking the results of industry to political concerns and economic activity. Regulation and antitrust, enraptured with antagonism, mistrust, and irony, boiled over for generations. The federal government's sole authority over interstate commerce allowed Congress to set rates for services, which were determined by fairness. Of course, the federal government lacked the information necessary to determine what these rates should be, and so they decided to create commissions to deal with railway rates, highway rates, and port rates. The Interstate Commerce Commission was created in order to restrict the power of shippers. Progressives became more and more assured of themselves and their abilities to regulate business. The nail in the coffin was World War I. A very progressive war, of course, railroads and ports were not only modally categorized, learned, and enforced into the minds of Americans, they were also forced into declining by a seizure and operation during World War I. Woodrow Wilson suspended the Interstate Commerce Commission for even greater centralization. He handed over sole power of regulation to his Treasury Secretary, William McAdoo, dubbing him the Director of the Railroads. Furthermore, Wilson decided that the United States needed to maintain its own merchant marine to carry overseas trade. And so he designated an international cartel to take greater control over ports, freight rates, and the allocation of cargo. The details of this regulation can be found in both the Navy Act and the Shipping Act of 1916. The First World War gave the federal government the most control exercised over freight transportation since that which was gained during the Civil War. 
The government seized and operated railroads, committing to the massive deployments that were happening overseas, and poured huge amounts of cash into the development of a U.S. merchant marine. At the end of the war, railroads and merchant shipping were partially returned to private corporation, but the ability to direct public control was neither given back nor forgotten. Regulation of public utilities, when they were deemed as such, was irreversible and greatly constrained private businesses. The Merchant Marine Act of 1920 did the same thing for the maritime industry that the Interstate Commerce Commission was meant to do for railroads. Though there was a return to private corporations, the federal government greatly increased its regulatory ability in the power grab. Just as highways began to be innovated in the 1920s, the progressives oversaw more massive power grabs, and constraints imposed by rate regulation and absence of management systems burdened all transportation sectors, making them unable to adequately respond to what was coming. The Great Depression collapsed huge swaths of industry in the United States. The Interstate Commerce Commission, which regulated and constrained industry in the 1920s, was now tasked with its revivification. New Deal legislation, the cap of the Progressive Era, brought about the totality of progressive control into its culmination, radically undermining the public interest in favor of transforming modal competition, which had expanded markets and economies, into a poorly coordinated, irrational, and inefficient national transportation system. The Emergency Railroad Act, the Motor Carrier Act, and the 1936 Merchant Marine Act programmed regulatory construction of an inorganic industry and policy. The Civil Aeronautics Act and the 1940 Transportation Act soon followed, which forced the airline industry into the same public utility standard as other transportation industries had been forced into before. The New Deal codified an inefficient, enduring structure of modalism on the transportation industry which had not existed beforehand. Capitalists, entrepreneurs, and captains of industry had not created the conditions of modality. They had fought against it. Modality, or more properly, modalism, cardinalized various transportation industries, hamstringing innovation and keeping them essentially unchanged for the next 40 years. Ellis Hawley, a transportation historian, refers to the period as the perversion of the public utility concept. Quote, One field in which this perversion of the public utility concept was especially noticeable was transportation. Under depression conditions and in view of the threat posed by newer forms of transport, the leaders of the old transportation industries had begun to advocate for a broad expansion of the public utility approach, an extension they justified by appealing to past precedents, arguing that transportation was a natural monopoly or stressing that the public safety and national defense were of concern. As a result, there became a mixture of controls, protections, subsidies, and publicly sponsored cartels, a system in which the government became not only the regulator, but the protector, supporter, and provider as well. Things began to change when a successful trucker and entrepreneur entered the scene. While Malcolm McLean was not the first innovator of the cargo packing concept, he became the foremost entrepreneur of the container revolution. McLean operated a trucking firm which carried freight up and down the east coast of the United States, and he was familiar with road congestion, port delays, railway inefficiencies, and in looking to avoid those issues and go parallel to them, he designed a way to move loaded trailers into lots without having the need to cross highways. At first, his suggestion was to piggyback trailers on railway cars, but the already congested Southern Railway Network rejected him. So he bought and refitted a steamship, and he established a steamship company as an extension to his overland firm, but the Interstate Commerce Commission halted him immediately, demanded that he was only allowed to operate in one mode. So as a get-around, he established what would become a hugely successful company, which he called the Sealand Service, whereby he purchased and refitted old steamships 
which had already obtained authorizations from the Interstate Commerce Commission and the Coast Guard to be able to carry full-sized truck containers aboard the ship. Selling his old trucking company, he completely plunged himself into a new maritime venture, and the innovation was huge, and it would eventually make mandatory worldwide the concept of general cargo containers shifting through water, rail, and highway. Malcolm McLean, while managing to conform to all of the established modalist rules placed on his industry, innovated the concept of intermodalism and effected a revolution of transportation by transforming the way longshore work had been done. Longshore work was an industry which had never been considered a natural monopoly and therefore was not closely regulated. McLean also avoided construction and operational subsidies from the federal government when he was building internationally seaworthy ships because subsidized ships could not switch trade lanes without permission from Washington, which took months to acquire. With his innovations, McLean gave the freight transportation industry new ground, barreling through a highly regulated set of industries to make tremendous amounts of money. Revealing quite literally a world of trade, cargo now moves through huge reusable steel boxes, much like trailers hauled by domestic semis. By the beginning of the 21st century, 95% of general cargo moved between continents was containerized. The rapid growth of containerization amplifies capital, but also amplifies the core concerns of handling, cargo shifting, and determination of containerized transport modes. Intermodality represents a triumph of containerization and an irreversible shift in freight transportation, we're stuck this way, for better or worse, and cities, states, and regions have made massive infrastructural investments in container ports and other intermodal facilities, struggling to remain competitive in an industry that simultaneously consolidates and expands. As modalism gives way, breaking apart in favor of the intermodal freight container, the entire economy is forced to shift. While theorists seeking to recast transportation history lay out an optimistic view of intermodalism, they sometimes ignore the problems of the intermodal period, preferring only to look towards the postmodal future. Containerization profoundly changed the market and the conception of transportation. Carriers no longer think of themselves as operating within a single mode, be it rail, shipping, or trucking. Shippers now think in terms of transportation as a service that has to be integrated into a firm's overall operations. The system that is currently being constructed and slowly creeping towards completion since the 1920s and the age of Malcolm McLean is encountering daunting technical and managerial problems. As intermodalism conceptually and economically advances, it forces new ways of thinking about transportation. Modal conceptions of transportation see contingencies and problematics. The optimistic intermodalists, however, see non-contingencies on a flat plane. Arthur Donovan gives a comparison of the two systems of transportation, modal and postmodal, in an attempt to explain intermodality and his propositions for reframing transportation history as a whole. He writes, quote, A comparison may help clarify what is being proposed. Modern nation-states like the various modes of transportation, are historical entities. Their points of origin can be identified, and how they developed over time can be explained. For centuries in Europe, and for different periods of time elsewhere, nation-states have been the atomic units of world politics. States are traditionally regarded as autonomous and sovereign, that is, there's no higher authority to which they must answer. So long as the world has been divided geographically and politically into sovereign nation-states, the power of more general councils seeking to address regional and global concerns has been severely limited, the most notable contemporary example being the United Nations. While diplomats employing the protocols of international relations do succeed in arranging alliances and other forms of agreement among states, in the modern state system, no state willingly surrenders its fundamental freedom of action. Today, however, the concept of national sovereignty is slowly and steadily being transformed. Global commerce and communication and the development of regional trade agreements in Europe and North America are in fact reducing the freedom of action of the nations involved. 
We may be witnessing the end of the nation-state as the irreducible sovereign unit in the world, just as transportation of various modes can no longer function without complete autonomy. The benefits that flow from trade and industrial efficiency are persuading political leaders that they must be prepared to bargain away aspects of their independence so that they can share in the wealth available to members of larger economic communities. No one knows precisely where these trends are taking us, but in transportation, as in world politics, it seems that new and very different attitudes of organizations are gaining ascendancy. Intermodalism and internationalism prepared the way for profound institutional changes that now sustain new forms of political and industrial coordination on a global scale. But it isn't all peaches and cream, and there are problems ahead. Containerization changed the world via a shock to the system, stressing the increase of the creation of intermodal networks that operate every minute of the day, relying on thousands of ships that continuously operate with millions of containers en route to various worldwide destinations. Complexification at once infinitely expands as much as it seems to contract. The contraction becomes our concern. As efficient as this system sounds, it creates unexpected effects in freight transportation. Before containerization, ships could dock at port, unconcerned with the landworthy transportation that was going on, and could be loaded with cargo, and they only had to manage their own cargo and the seaworthiness of their own ships. But complexification now demands a flattening or reflattening of the field that was created, and a forced return to intermodality in a new system of still highly regulated commerce. Something is going to have to give, or everything will begin to sag. Imbalances begin to be revealed as contract negotiations between truckers, railroad operators, maritime vessels, container providers, wheel chassis renters, and longshoremen unions start to collide. As deficits on maritime vessels arise, the question of getting reusable containers, the rented chassis that serve them, and the ships themselves from place to place start to show up. Containers are needed for the totality of the trip, but the wheeled chassis is only needed for a few days at either end of this process, and that's only when the container has to be moved by truck. And when a container needs to be moved by rail, a chassis isn't needed at all. So calculation problems start to emerge, and not only do they stunt growth, they cause backups. More equipment, more ships, larger ships, bigger exports, all begin to burst land-based transportation systems at the seams. Ships end up sitting in harbor for days, or even weeks, at America's largest seaports. Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, Newark, just some of the most backed-up shores in America. It was in the year 2021 when the 70-year-long crisis in the making became noticeable. It would be too easy to blame COVID-19 regulations or lockdowns on creating the crisis, which has been the assumption since it started to show up in the news. Rather, it's more likely that the lockdowns and forced scarcity resulted from numerous federal government power grabs, and this was only the breaking point. The depth of the complexity in this system is further highlighted by Atman Integrated, who I talked about early in the episode, in a Twitter thread that I assume he entitled Pebble in the Pond, which goes as follows. Pebble in the Pond. The U.S., above all, depends on its ports to keep the retail supply chains moving. We are a net importer with a trade deficit of $600 billion for 2019, so what happens if the ports, our lifeblood, are bottlenecked? Thread. Prerequisite 1. Understanding how U.S. supply chains are tightly interconnected with China. Prerequisite 2. Understanding how U.S. consumer markets are an import-focused model that has shaped the framework of U.S. logistics and supply chain management. With those prerequisites out of the way, Let's dive into the current state of affairs at U.S. ocean ports and what the coming days will likely bring. Now, any port of entry, ocean or air, is going to have a vast ecosystem of stakeholders, processes, and equipment to account for. 
A single shipment importing to or exporting from the United States is going to have some or all of the following entities involved. Shippers, consignees, third parties like forwarders or custom brokers, U.S. customs, ocean carriers, ports, terminals at ports, draymen, truckers, railroads, chassis providers. Every single one of these entities must do their job timely and effectively to prevent planned shipment costs from spiraling out of control. Importantly, all are accruing costs to perform their task and will pass along any costs resulting from the breakdowns. Before sailing from overseas, ISF 10 plus 2 is filed to U.S. Customs to notify of incoming transport details. Ten days prior to arrival, customs brokers file entries to customs and duties are calculated. If container deliveries are local, draymen will pick up a container. 99% of draymen use a rented chassis, which is a bare frame with wheels that mates with a container to make a complete trailer. Chassis rentals cost anywhere from $20 to $75 a day, depending on the type. Chassis pools at ports and container yards are managed by just a few large groups. The chassis are often owned by leasing companies who pay for the asset itself, plus the maintenance. Note that chassis are one of the biggest choke points in this whole process. If the container is not delivered locally, it's being delivered by rail somewhere, and a different process has to be initiated. Most major ports are serviced on dock by one or two major railroads where containers load directly to the train inside the terminal and are taken inland. Railroads are fairly efficient operations but are increasingly limited. A single unit train of containers can stretch for three miles with as many as 200 wells, slots to double stack containers. Each loaded well holds just around 100,000 pounds in weight, so load management is critical. That single unit train will have cargo for tens or hundreds of receivers on it, all having planned their supply chains around timely arrival of the train itself. At the rail ramp, which is a rail truck served inland port, the draymen and chassis choke point await. Draymen as truckers are subject to a version of the same hours of service regulations that have gotten so much play during the supply chain crunch post COVID. Depending on the city or route, a driver will only get one to two loads delivered per day. Additionally, receivers have different rules on how they will accept delivery. Some live unload, which means a driver waits for an hour or two while a container is unloaded. Many require delivery appointments, and some require drops where the container stays there for a day or two. Further, some receivers need their draymen to pre-pull meaning pick up a container early and hold it at the drayman's lot until delivery days later. Since it's more operationally inefficient, the draymen charge for that service, and the chassis by the day price racks up too. Once delivery is made, the same dray company picks up the empty container and returns it to the chassis to their respective depot or rail ramp. And here again, cost. The ocean carriers pay the railroad or depots to hold the containers. Governing this pallet of diesel and steel are demurrage and detention. Demurrage is a penalty charged to a port or railroad for use of their facilities past a grace period, which is usually two days. Detention is charged by the ocean carrier for excessive time on the container. Shippers and receivers closely monitor demurrage and detention risks. Ports and railroads charge $100 to $300 a day for demurrage, and detention can be $50 to $150 plus per day. A single stuck container can accrue enormous debts for the bill payer. Logistics managers have to balance all of this every shipment every day. A single stoppage has an accordion effect that will affect the rest of the delivery cycle. At scale, it can crush a supply chain and take months to unwind. Downstream of all this are U.S. exporters. When imports are rolling in hot and heavy, empty containers and vessel space are plentiful. But with COVID-19, imports, and thus empty containers, have slowed way down, along with vessel space. Containerized U.S. exports are on average much heavier than imports. In general, the U.S. imports consumer goods and exports material, like lumber, grain, and chemicals. And weight container governs everything, since a train or ship can only hold so much tonnage. Thus, 
US exports are limited by the fact that for every four or five slots on a container ship of imports, only three or four full exports can go back out. The rest is dead space, empty containers. This puts US exporters further behind the eight ball in the capacity crunch. This absurdly long-winded but still basic primer was important to explaining the current state of affairs. Simply put, the average person has no idea how complex and precarious an international supply chain is or how easy it is for costs to spin out of control. Like a pebble thrown in a pond that causes big ripples, a disruption at any point triggers widespread shock to the system. The second half of this thread will deal with specific effects and recommended preventions to supply chain bottlenecks. Here's a picture of a baby fennec fox. He includes a picture of an extremely cute fennec fox. Hopefully that will lessen the sheer existential transportation terror that we are now experiencing. So what exactly is coming? The so-called bottleneck archipelago or the great bottleneck, other terms have been used to describe the same retail nightmare. Optimists admit conditions won't be resolved until 2023, but if you read resolved as returned to prior conditions, you are a utopian. E-commerce boomed during the COVID-19 pandemic, and lockdown regulations further exacerbated an infrastructural problem that American seaports and railways were already unable to handle. Beyond that, artificially created material scarcity, rapidly rising inflation, and disillusionment among rising levels of unemployed all created conditions of disorganization and disruption. Distribution centers are similarly crushed due to these conditions, and most distribution centers are running at about 80% of their usual capacities, with some dipping even as low as 60%. And now comes the holiday season. Meaningful solutions are hard to come by, when the only suggestion is be careful and buy seasonally available products now, buy your holiday goods now, and so on, you know there are barely any solutions to this problem, and any concept that the situation will recover within a few years is laughable. Congestion in American seaports and railways cause dwell times of several weeks or more, meaning that transoceanic trips usually used to take over a month can now take three or four months at minimum. Because of wait times, carriers are obviously having to charge similar rates at three or four times as much as what they used to. Prices of everything have to rise in order to match the waiting times, and prices are rising. Demand for microchips has gone up tremendously as those businesses that wish to continue operations were forced to go remote, which had to provide computers to their employees as well as other electronic equipment. Chip suppliers in China are dealing with massive backlogs due to labor shortages, port blockages. Car manufacturers also canceled chip orders during the pandemic lockdown because of restrictions and expectation that people wouldn't be buying new cars. Forcing these chips to go back to their manufacturer into storage facilities, which creates even more scarcity and drives up the price and contributes to the slug. Chip bottlenecks are hindering global supply at unprecedented rates. Acer recently announced that it was only able to fill 50% of global demand. And food prices are going up as well. You probably noticed that. Shipping containers currently bottlenecked at port are becoming harder for small exporters to obtain. The soybean industry, which feeds literally and operationally into the beef industry, is delayed about up to $6 billion in agricultural exports. As thousands of containers flow into the United States internationally, which contain consumer goods, the port of Los Angeles, which is the largest container port in the United States, shipped a record number of empty containers out. And this is all based on profits. International shippers are making more money shipping empty reusable containers than they are making money shipping food products. Food exporters are actually at the forefront of this. 70 national agricultural organizations have asked the Biden administration to step in, and step in they have, introducing the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021. And from what we've learned so far, does it sound like more bills and more acts are the solution to the problem? You probably guessed no, and you'd be correct in that guess. The bill sounds good at first, not to my ears, probably not to yours, but certainly to many constituents. It sets minimum service standards for international ocean carriers. The interdependence of the international shipping system creates system-wide shocks that go well beyond the limits of the freight transportation industry. Exporters who are dealing with high costs and long delays are attempting to level the playing field by bringing in the federal government. Doesn't that sound familiar? 
The Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021 isn't a solution. In fact, it's likely going to compound the problem. It's no big shock that politicians seek to get around blaming themselves, their inactive constituents, and their insistence on funding social programs over expanding infrastructure. Instead, the container industry is bearing the full brunt to blame in this situation. Applied economist Mark Bellamere of the University of Minnesota seeks to grapple with the complexity of the problem that he sees as multifactorial. He says container bottlenecks might be one thing, but the buildup of 70 years wasn't caused by containers. Think about it this way. If several dozen ships full of containers are waiting at port, still floating in the harbor, unable to dock, does that sound like a container bottleneck or a dock bottleneck? The truth is, longshoremen's unions have been fighting against the expansion of ports for decades. Progressive politicians have been willing to feed their apathy and fear, redirecting money that would go to infrastructural expansion into other programs. The Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021 attempts to address sluggish transit times, rising prices, halted exports by blaming containers and carriers, which reveals a total ignorance among politicians of the industry that they're dealing with, or worse, an active and malicious attempt to avoid blame on themselves and their industry, the regulatory industry. Seaports and railways have to be expanded, fast. John DeLeo, whose incredible report inspired and directly informed the creation of this episode, writes, Cutting the red tape enables railroads and port authorities to expand quickly. But there's no quick fix to this problem. Even if the federal government works quickly to remove the usual restrictions it has, bottlenecks are going to take months to resolve. And bottlenecks will only begin to be resolved once ports and rails are expanded, the construction of which could take years at least a decade or more. And the only other meaningful solution which can be enacted in the meanwhile is a nationwide turn inward, where the American consumer finally makes the firm decision to halt purchasing from abroad. The collapse of cheap, efficient, and fast international transportation due to the vulnerabilities of the intermodal system, which are only vulnerabilities due to the government's intervention and regulation, demand that responsibility towards internal sourcing of resources, American-made manufacturing, and national economic sovereignty would be cultivated at least until the international transportation system, that is, ports and railways, can be expanded. And even then, as the intermodal system continues to dissolve nation-state geographic barriers and flatten the freight transportation service system, the problem of integration with state regulation will continue to haunt the international economy and will continue to develop cyclical crises. And that's that. I don't have anything more. It's going to get expensive. And as usual, it's easy to finger point at politicians because it's so easy. It's the truth. They're in the way, as usual. And they got in the way in the first place. Don't take me as saying that intermodality is bad. Not only is it not bad, it represents what a free market would create a solution to regulation for. It is continued regulation, continued standing in the way, and on top of that, lockdowns for a pandemic that are causing all of the issues we're going to see for the next decade and a half. There's not much that you as an individual can do unless there is a nationwide movement to turn inward, which is something that most libertarians have been saying needs to be done for a long time, and not at the level of creating tariffs on imports, more like a fundamental re-understanding and national unity movement towards buying American-made products. It's something Donald Trump was trying to get people to do, and as much as I hate the guy, it was a great move. Now, the obvious thing is that the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2021 sounds good, politicians don't know anything about shipping, and even if they did, they would have to admit that it was their industry that caused all of these problems to begin with. And they're not going to do that. And they're not going to cut red tape because that would relinquish power that they have to be able to call the shots and lay the blame. So the solution to this is no solution until something breaks. If something was going to happen, some right populist, probably going to be the only side that would advocate for something like this, some right populist movement is going to have to come and take over to convince people to start buying 
American-sourced and American-made products, but not for some nationalistic reason, more so to keep the prices of food down. Because now we're competing with what most economists say is not good, which is alienating, and rising prices due to a kind of forced alienation of our ports. If trucks and ships aren't able to move goods and get them in from outside, what's the difference? So we, as the reasonable listeners, are hamstrung here because everything has become so attached to fascism and nationalism that one can barely make an argument that we should perhaps start buying more American-made products without shrieking from every direction. In truth, it seems like the only real solution here is to turn inward, source, and buy American so that our international trade industries can recuperate from problems created by our politicians. But that just seems like so cyclical at this point. It really seems like everything that we've been saying this whole time, we're constantly correct, we are such geniuses, no one will listen. It is our Sisyphean task to keep making more podcasts until eventually everyone starts to. And I don't think they will until they're forced to by a real system shock. I don't want to be a doomer here, and I don't want to turn everything into a, a, an allegory for change after collapse, but certainly in this case, I don't see a good solution unless there's a nationwide movement of some kind. Or there's a forced movement because of a collapse economically. We'll see what happens. I mean, if everybody who I've just read to you is correct, we are in this for a long, long haul. So maybe bookmark this episode, and if in 10 years we just started to rebuild our ports, you could go, huh, maybe he was onto something. And my three days, four days of diving headfirst into an industry I had no understanding of before I started to read about it will have been worth something. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, sticking along for the ride. More Doomer content to come to you, I'm sure. Spooky season is fast approaching Check out our Patreon to listen to the Over the Line episodes. It is Friday, King Friday. Happy day to all my kings. There's going to be content on there, more Over the Line episodes to come. And of course, as frequent listeners, longtime listeners know, October is our most powerful, most kingly month, the end of which culminates in the coveted and beloved Halloween episode. Now, everybody knows I organize and edit these episodes. People have been asking me, hey, what's going to happen with the Halloween episode? Are you going to make it like 12 hours long this time? All I can say to that is I hope not. But we'll see what happens. Until then, listeners, until the next episode of TLE or the Over the Line, keep the peace and ciao.